0: You're listening to Reach, Teach, Talk with Nat Day. Welcome to another episode of Reach, Teach, Talk. Today we have as our guest, Dr. Judy Chu, who is a lecturer in the program of human biology, in human biology at Stanford University, where she currently teaches a course on boys' psychosocial development. Uh, You can learn from that title that we are going to focus today on boys and particularly on boys and relationships, boys, relational beings, boys as relational beings, um, how boys relationships with themselves impact or influence the way that they relate to others. Um, What are the influences on boys as they develop themselves as relational uh, beings? And one of the more fascinating elements of her research, um, in my opinion, is how she's able to connect early childhood boyhood with adolescence. And in fact, the title of Judy's book from 2014, "When Boys Become Boys," uh, just really, really speaks to that point because, you know, there's boys like toddlers; they're joy filled, they're exuberant. The ones you see on the playground, uh, pretending to be superheroes, or you know, back in my day, Luke Skywalker or Han Solo. Um, and and then you have boys like the the all caps boys, like the boys as defined boys. And, and you can tell by my tone um, that th- there's a heaviness as well as um, a, a solidity, a gravitas to being a boy. And Judy and I are going to speak today. We're going to have an amazingly delightful and thought-provoking uh, conversation about, about boyhood today, 2022. Right now, it is literally, we're in early March 2022. God willing, knock on wood, um, coming moving into the endemic phase of uh, what has been so impactful on uh, development, all of our development, uh, particularly uh, youth and young adults, and uh, with the incorporation of isolation and remote teaching and learning and the stress and parental stress, anxiety all around, um, how have boys come out of this or what are they currently weathering and how can we as a society and as the adults in society, whether we're teachers Parents or just people who work with or or are in the company of boys, how can we really draw from what Judy is going to share with us today to relate to boys better, in hopes that they can, in turn, relate to this very interesting society in which we are currently living? So, without much further ado, Judy, I'm thrilled to welcome you. And by the and and by the way, it's, it's a beautiful day in Los Angeles. I'm speaking to Judy. Uh, she's up in San Francisco, so it's kind of nice to have an early, early spring day here as backdrop to what will be a very spring-like conversation. So welcome, Judy, to our program.
1: Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here.
0: I would love to just start with your interest in uh, focusing on, on boys and particularly the idea of boys' relationships. And uh, where did this come from? Did you grow up with brothers? Did you have an influence as, as a child yourself? Um, let's start where you began.
1: Okay, yeah, well, I do have a brother as well as a sister. Um, My brother's nine years younger. And um, I often tell this story of how I came to study boys and their relationships. And it was very much um, that I was led to it by boys themselves. Um, When my brother was about 13 years old and I had just finished my first year as a doctoral student at Harvard, I came home that summer and was driving him and a bunch of his friends around. And they were wondering you know, what I had learned at Harvard And I said, well, there, you know, I, I met this woman named Carol Gilligan, and she's done this amazing work with girls and, you know, supporting girls and, and the importance of that. And one of the boys said to me, you know, that's great. I know that everyone's really concerned about girls and that's, it's important for people to be doing that, but there's stuff going on for boys too. And nobody's talking to us. Nobody's, you know, nobody's looking at boys. And so he's like, you should study boys and you can start with me. And it had not occurred to me, you know, in, with my you know, being influenced by stereotypes of adolescent boys, I, it had not occurred to me that an adolescent boy would wanna talk to me, you know, about his life and about his relationships. But that's exactly what came up in the first interview that I had with him was he spoke for two hours and it was everything from his friendships to his crushes, to, you know, his family relationships and all these things that were so central to his development. And I thought, you know, and this is very consistent with what Carol Gilligan's work was about, was like how central relationships are to, you know, all people's lives, not just girls and women, even though, you know, the stereotypes tend to say, oh, relationships; those are the realm of girls and women, emotions, those are about girls and women. But of course, you know, all genders have emotions and, you know, and need relationships in order to thrive. So it was very, like, anyway, so it was very much, you know, boys telling me, hey, you know, this has been overlooked and possibly by you too. And, you know, why don't you come and take a look? And they were so, um, kind of appealing in that way. I couldn't, you know, I was definitely drawn in immediately and interested to hear what they had to say. And so that's how I started looking at um, boys' relationships, boys' development, how they experience the messages about what it means to be a boy and things like that, so. I,
0: I, love, I love that story because it also, it, it, it prompts me to think or to ask actually, what was it that, um, that he was hoping to gain um in a sense from recommending that you study boys was he was there a specific answer to his question that he was looking for or was he just looking to be listened to
1: that is a great question i think one definitely he wanted to be listened to and two there were definitely issues that were coming up for him that he thought not that i had the answers to them but that maybe talking through it with somebody would help so having kind of a sounding board and say like you know is this reasonable for me to be wondering about this? Do I just need to suck it up and kind of figure it out? And and definitely, you know, in my listening to him talk about it, those were, you know, he would almost debate both sides, right? Like, here's something, like, at the time, one of the things that came up was he goes, you know, I really love Anne Rice novels. And, you know, it's about these vampires. But what I love about it is these relationships and these men have these friendships. And he's like, you know, and it's, it's really intriguing to him because, but then he immediately backpedals and says, oh, but, you know, why would a man want that? You know, why would a boy want that? You know, so this very much a like kind of this you know ebb and flow of like, here's something that intrigues me. I'm drawn to it, but I also already know that society or other people might not always be very accepting of this. So to speak to kind of what you were saying, um I think this might have been before we started recording. but this idea of you know the way boys are said to be, versus the way they experience themselves to be and what they recognize to be the reality of their lives. And they're working very much to kind of reconcile those. Like, is there a way that those two things come together? And sometimes, you know, this particular kid would say, he was kind of tentatively concluding, but still a little resistant to concluding that maybe that's just a part of growing up is coming to accept that there's always gonna be a gap or a discrepancy between the way people say boys are or the way people see you as and the way you know yourself to be or wish to be seen. you know. And so actually when you were talking about the title of my book, that second all caps boys used to had originally had quotes around it. So it's like when boys, you know, human boys, human beings, Become quote unquote boys, the way boys are said to be, or expected to be, or presumed to be, you know, all these kinds of more stereotypical boys, the boys that we come to recognize as, oh, boys will be boys. But it's actually rather um, inconsistent with what their, you know, capacities and desires that they're born with to express themselves fully, to be known in these relationships that turn out to be protective and essential to their health and well being. So it's really interesting to look at how their developmental trajectory maybe leads them away from some of the things that are actually not feminine weaknesses, but human strengths that they'll need in their per, you know personal lives as well as their professional lives.
0: That's excellent. When I think about those, those uh, strengths I'm thinking about, um, or those unheralded strengths uh, that might not be defined as masculine strengths. Am I right to think about um, going to Brene Brown, uh, particularly thinking about vulnerability and humility or strength in listening versus speaking is that are those the types of strengths that you're referring to
1: absolutely absolutely brene brown's work on vulnerability is so important because like boys relational strengths boys vulnerability often gets kind of overlooked or discounted or undervalued and as you know from her work it's so important i mean if we're going to learn we learning is a vulnerable process you know because it starts with admitting we don't know something and it involves possibly revealing to other people that you don't know it and having them witness you struggling you know as you as you try to you know get better at that or, or to acquire certain knowledge and skills and so learning it's you know vulnerability is essential to love and kind of in a complementary way the relational strengths like you know this ability to kind of respond to people and to read the world and be attuned and sensitive not only to their own feelings, but also to other people's. These are all things that are essential to cultivating the kind of connections both to themselves like in terms of maintaining their sense of integrity and knowing who they are and what they want which is not easy easier said than done and also relating to other people I mean being able to tune into themselves respond to other people these are all things qualities that are that are human qualities that are very very much important to their thriving and not merely surviving kind of this path through life right and in the the inevitable obstacles that we will all face you know so challenges and all these things if you're told that you know life is going to throw these things at you and those challenges and struggles are real but a certain group or certain groups of people are not allowed to reach out and ask for help when they need it that's really it's horrible actually. And it's, it can be, you know, it, and then especially to wrap it around shame, you know, and to say, Oh, and if you, if you admit that you actually don't know something, which everybody doesn't, you know, there are things that we all don't know There are things that the learning process, you know, in the learning process, we all kind of have to admit to not being already experts at, you know, and, and prevents them from being able to um, circumvent any, um, any gaps or, you um, Kind of weaknesses, not weaknesses, but circumvent things that they're not already good at, in mm-hmm. order to develop, you know, the things that they're interested in becoming better at, and and then also their strengths.
0: Yep, it's interesting because um, hearing about hearing you speak about vulnerability, uh, Reach each talk is this podcast is about relationships in the classroom and the classroom of life, right? So it's taking what's outside and and, and integrating it to the inside of the classroom walls and vice versa. And I, found, I find a lot of times we talk about, I talk with teachers about the power of vulnerability and how you can use that as a connective way to relate to your students, not in a way of like, I wasn't prepared, I don't know, and that's why I don't know. But instead, I actually don't know the answer to that question, isn't that curious? Um, you know, And then you can go from there, like, why don't you do some research and come back to me tomorrow? Or I'll do some research and we can compare notes tomorrow. And that brings us together. And yeah. it's interesting because I hadn't thought about it necessarily in that lens of, um, because I grew up, I, I, I am a man, I'm a self-identified male. And I grew up in a, in a culture where absolutely, like, you need to know the answers. The person who knows the answers is the person who's in charge. And that being in charge is is very charged with um, a masculine kind of connotation. So it's nice, really nice to hear you speak of Um, that area of of vulnerability, of humility as being one that is really important to explore in healthy boys' development.
1: I think, I mean, I I really applaud Brene Brown for just kind of normalizing vulnerability because when we can't acknowledge and and admit to vulnerability, it just, like I said, it just becomes a huge obstacle that unnecessarily gets in the way of you know connecting with people and 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 doing the things that we need to do. It also creates this enormous kind of anxiety around revealing that you're not always in control. Especially you know like, as you're saying, like during the pandemic, nobody's in control. I mean, it's so uncertain, so tumultuous, so unpredictable. And so to have to always act like you know what's gonna happen when it's impossible to do so creates this tension and unnecessary stress. Whereas if if people acknowledge, yeah, this is really hard, you know, then you everybody kind of breathes a collective sigh of relief because they realize they're not the only one struggling. And I think that's the other thing is that a lot of times individuals are made to feel like, oh, everyone else is fine. Everyone's got to figure it figured out, you know, their lives are perfect. And social media certainly exacerbates that kind of dynamic, but, you know, and, individuals kids especially but adults too i mean the minute we find out somebody else is just like us you know trying our best but really you know there are things that are hard it's you know we don't know everything and they don't um i think when as teachers i know that i always worry like oh if i admit that then they're going to be like why am i even in this class why is she teaching the class <laughs> okay she doesn't know all the answers but what i find is exactly the opposite is then all of a sudden they're like Oh, okay. So if she if she admits that she doesn't know, then we can figure it out together, and I can admit I don't know. And then it just opens up a whole new. And plus, they teach each other, you know, and I learn from them. It just creates a much more cooperative, much more um, just safe, brave environments, and all those kinds of things. And so, and think parents have the same thing. Like they're afraid that you know, as the authority, they have to have all the answers. But what their kids really crave is seeing that, oh, you know what, they don't, and this is how they handle it. Because then when I don't have the answers, I know that I don't have to fall apart or hide in shame. I know that there's a, there are paths forward to kind of admit that we don't know it and then get some help. And I love so, that. It's,
0: it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's taking the rugged individual and, and actually putting more of the spotlight on the teaming approach. Um, right. Let's do this together. Oh, that, that individual doesn't know the answer and is inviting me to join him or her on I'm on, on discovering what it might be. Okay. Um, it gets me thinking uh, about what we touched on earlier, but I'd love to explore a little more deeply, uh, Judy, which is this idea of boyhood, lowercase boy, um, the vulnerable, vulnerable, the more vulnerable boy, the more um, sensitive young boy, the more uh, joy-filled, uh, and perhaps the more, and definitely the more expressive boy. and, 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 and what and what happens? What is your research? kind of, um, if not concluded, where does it lead us to in terms of what happens to boys from three to, say, 10?
1: I love that. Thank you. You totally set me up for, for just talk about the things that I love most about learning with these younger boys. I mean, I should say that it was, I I started out studying the adolescent boys because they told me, asked me to, but when I found out that they were already talking about it, like this is, you know, maybe just part of growing up, we just have to accept it. This discrepancy, you know, accepting that discrepancy between how people say they are versus how they experience themselves to be. I spoke to Carol Gilligan, who was, you know, guiding and supervising my work at the time, and she... Believe that you know I needed to look earlier when they're still actively struggling, when it when those kinds of messages and pressures around masculinity and being a real boy were first coming in, and they're saying, "Wait, this is totally contrary," and they you know were in a way in a place where they were still actively challenging it instead of kind of privately challenging it. And so she felt like, "Oh, we, we I needed to look at you know boys in kind of early childhood. I looked at um, all of the boys in a pre kindergarten class, and some of the things that really." Surprised me in the most wonderful ways was just, you know, like you're saying, how out there they were and how open they were, how they wore their hearts on their sleeves. They would and could tell you exactly what they were thinking and feeling, and that exuberance made them so appealing, not only to the adults but to each other. I mean, there was just this, like, we're just here, we're having a good time. No, there's no agenda. Nobody's trying to, you know one up the other person, they're just together in the most kind of wholesome and friendly and wonderful ways, and how much they enjoyed that, you know, and how much that can be kind of came alive in those situations. And then in tracking them over, you know, that that year, you know, is kind of their first for most of them, the first years that they had been kind of in a school setting. And so kind of learning new rules that maybe were not always the same as what they were hearing at home from their parents. Like, you know, for instance, when, when, when boys' parents would say, you know, if it doesn't feel right for you, don't do it. You know, or if, some, you know, if you, they were very much supportive of him being who he is and doing what he felt was right. And they really wanted to kind of nurture his moral compass and also his right to kind of preserve his integrity and say what he really thought, even if it disagreed. It didn't mean he'd always be right. But he could always contribute what he honestly thought, right? And coming into a space where they were quickly learning that, you know, oh, there's a way that the boys are expected to be. And if I wanna be accepted and I wanna fit in, then I kind of have to do these. And it wasn't like, you know, this coming down of a very strict regime or anything, but there were definite kind of implicit rules of engagement. Like, oh, if you wanna fit in with the boys, then you, you run around at recess or you play guns or you see guns everywhere, like even in, you know, they use their hands they use bananas, they use Legos to make guns. Whereas if you wanna make sure that you don't get mistaken um, to be one of the girls, then you eschew doll play, you make sure you don't play with the girls. You know, So there were all these, there's this kind of, um, they called it the mean team. And it was this this club that the boys created um, in order to distinguish themselves as boys and as being separate and different from the girls. But so, I mean, but that, that mean team was kind of, uh, like a microcosm of what they, what boys in general, I think are experiencing around that age, which is, oh, there are these expectations. There are these things that people value or notice or particularly encourage in boys. And there are things that don't get encouraged in boys. And because they're driven, and this is really important because they're primarily motivated, not simply by this, you know, this command, like, you must prove that you're a boy, that they're driven and motivated because they want to identify and relate to other people, especially, you know, their peers. And so they want to, they want to be one of the boys and with the boys, and they want that sense of belonging and acceptance. So it's a very relational motive that drives them to then willingly say, okay, maybe I need to hide this behavior or emphasize that quality more in this context. But ironically you know those rules of engagement that we prescribe as a, that, that we as a society prescribe for boys actually makes it harder for them to establish the very connections that they're that they're in it for you know that motivate them in the first place like they're thinking i want to connect i want to have these intimate emotionally intimate relationships i want to feel like people know who i am but society tells me these are the things i need to do to earn that and then the, doing those things actually makes it harder for them to feel close and to feel known and to feel truly accepted. So this is all going on, you know, kind of at this early childhood stage and it's, but it doesn't like stop, like when they turn six, it's kind of, that's kind of an, um, Niobe Wei once described it as my, when she was talking about my work, she goes, you basically observe the first in a series of disconnections along the pathway of boys developmental trajectory. And I was like, that's so interesting. And she observes it, of course, with her work with adolescent boys and their friendships and what happens to that as they, again, you know, adolescents kind of get their version at that age of what society, how society views, you know, boy boy friendships and how they have to kind of make sure nobody thinks that there are kind of Homosexual undertones to that friendship, and how that can get, you know, become an obstacle to maintaining those friendships, and and to admitting how much they value and love their best friends. So um, there's a lot of kind of prescriptions for boys that get in the way of their what infant studies show is an inherent capacity and desire for connection. And again, you know that is so important. Um, the the work that I do with the Movember Foundation shows that it's so important not only during childhood and adolescence, but into their adult lives, because loneliness it's real, and it has not only you know consequences for our mental health, but also for physical health. And so there's a lot of ways in which these prescriptions, however well intended or whatever purposes they may have served at some point, are turning out not to be very. Helpful, and so we need to at least con- reconsider them and and question whether whether you know if it was meant to be helpful, is it actually helpful or is it hurting boys?
0: It's it's wow. I mean, it's really heartbreaking what you're sharing about because it's coming from a desire to connect, as you said, it's coming from a four-year-old whose heart wants to connect with another four-year-old's heart and wants to. Be a friend, because that four-year-old, by the time they're four, they know what a friend, or at least they had a solid definition in their head about what friendship is, and they certainly see the value of friendships, and they want to be connected. Our brains are wired for connectivity, um, and yet the heartbreaking aspect of it is, um, I, in order to connect, I might need to be ashamed, frankly, of, of parts of myself shame being defined by something about who you are that is that is not right. Um, you know, I like to play with dolls or I'm really into fashion or I love just more of the feminine stereotypical behaviors at four or five years old that would connect if you could truly be who you are.
1: Or even the, like I'm afraid or I'm sad. I mean, we've yeah. even, we've even gendered emotions, emotions. that, again, are, are mm-hmm. like normal for all people to have, and we tell, you know, tell boys, oh, actually, you know, you can't talk about that. You can't talk about pain. You can't say that's scary or you're scared or worried. And that, that really cuts them off from the kind of full range that they need to access in order to really make sense of what they're feeling and to really engage with other people in authentic ways. But you're absolutely right. I mean, it's like they crave that connection and they crave authenticity in those connections. So it's not like they just want to count, like I have 12 friends or whatever they seek this truth, which includes a vulnerability, right? And they know, they recognize immediately, instinctually when that authenticity is lacking. Yes. And so what's happening as some yes. of the boys are socially adapting to you know, these norms of masculinity, this is what will gain status or popularity or acceptance, or at least what they're told, that moves them away from being able to be fully present and bring themselves in ways that, they, again, at the end of the day, will they feel that someone really knows them or will they feel like they've gained friends but that those friends don't know them at all. And so we've really put them on this path to kind of um, feel like who they are is not enough that they have to become something else or something more in order for people to like them. And so even when they do gain, you know, when they do become popular or they do have these friendships, they can still feel lonely. And that's kind of the problem (laughs) is that we lead them in those wrong directions
0: that that seduction of society's acceptance right right it's it's so strong and it does generate on on a significant level majorly significant level it generates some reward yet on the deep level on the fundamental soulful level of course your relationship with yourself is compromised and and it's it's interesting you you talk about movember um and by the way you're on the board uh, the medical board right of of this incredible nonprofit is that right
1: uh, for november i'm on the global men's health advisory committee amazing so sorry there's there's just the wording but i am on the board of promundo of promundo us and right. i'm on the board and so anyway
0: and, and I'm thinking about with, with Movember, it's it's um, health, it's mental health and physical health, right? And they've got, you know, they, they are absolutely addressing issues that are physical and mental that are impacting uh, the lifespan of men and how, you know, they, they, they speak about how men live five years younger than women generally in the Western world and, and how can we um, really shine a light on and heal uh, these mental health issues that come, uh, that, are, that, that are brought about by, you um, uh, elements of masculinity, and also prostate cancer, testicular cancer—you um, know, medical ailments uh, that uh, primarily that impact men—and so the the work, right? Those both of those uh, Promundo as well, which I'd love for you to speak about, actually, because I know less about Promundo than I than I do about Movember. Um, but both of these nonprofits catch—they they, they focus. They to me, they focus on adult men. And I'm wondering about what we can do as educators, as parents. Um, What what has your research led you to to conclude about creating as optimally healthy a world for boys? Um, What what would go into that?
1: Well, both of the organizations actually, in addition to having programs for men, they also have expanded and and have programs for boys. Um, like for instance, Movember has a head of the game, which looks at um, adolescent boys and goes through kind of their involvement in sports and how they can, for instance, if they notice a friend is you know, having a hard time, how conversation starters, how to check in so that boys can support each other and feel uh, to lower those kind of barriers that prevent boys from reaching out when they notice something's around, to try, you know, to go with their instincts when they, when they're like, hey, this is my best friend and something bothering, but you know, again, the rules of masculinity say, oh, we're not supposed to notice. I don't want him to feel embarrassed by it, so I'm not going to say anything. And they're trying to kind of say, actually, it would really help. <laughs> and it really is important for you, you know, as, as one of the people who will notice the, the, the differences to do something. And then Pramundo has um, launched their global boyhood initiative, which includes, you know, um, for instance, they have like a deck of cards for teachers and parents to start conversation starters for them to have with the boys in their lives. Because I think, again, in general, we tend to feel more entitled to ask girls and women, what's going on with you, if we notice something's wrong. So we we have you know, kind of to intrude on their lies with good intentions, and we tend to be more ha- hands-off, and sometimes it's in the name of being respectful, you know, allowing a guy to figure it out, or, you know, and but that's t- proving to be not what they need. They need they need the same you know it, again it's a, it's a human quality to need other people. Nobody in this world succeeds alone. We all need help yeah. at some point. And it's not I I, lo- I really love how Ross Zebo talks about this in terms of mental health. He's like it's not like there's those people who need help with their mental issues and those people who don't, it's that sometimes life presents really challenging circumstances and anyone, even the most healthy person that we can imagine, given that circumstance is going to struggle and need help. And so it's really not about somehow a defect or a flaw or a pathology in the person if they are struggling, It's that they might be facing something that's truly challenging and we all need support in those instances. And so again, just normalizing that vulnerability, making it okay so that boys and men in particular, but all people feel like there's no shame in, in admitting, gosh, you know, things feel really overwhelming. I don't know what to do right now. And I could really use, you know, someone who just, even to just to listen, not necessarily someone who can solve the situation because sometimes there is no easy solution or any solution at all. But, you know, as one of the adolescent boys in my inter- that I interviewed said, he says, just that sense of knowing that somebody understands he says that just comforts, it provides a level of comfort. So they, it's not like they're saying, come and fix my problem. It's to help them build the resilience healthy resilience when they inevitably face life's challenges and struggles.
0: It, that, that approach, the, the idea of I'm seeking somebody to listen to me reminds me of that young man at the beginning that, that kind of started your, catalyzed your um, right. your area of focus in your career. Um, you know, what about us boys? I'd be curious if, why don't you take a look at what it is to be a boy uh, in society? I am reminded also in what you were just sharing about um, these these organizations that are focused on men's mental health. I was living in London uh, during the time of, of Brexit and uh, for five years it was exactly during the during that period of time where Brexit was voted in and uh, that whole just the focus on Brexit was huge. Yet arguably um, a very very close uh, second um, of an area of focus in the UK uh, during the time that I was there was on exactly what you're talking about. Um, Prince William and Prince Harry uh, very vocal and, and, and key sports figures as well. And very, very vocal, um, uh, support for a new way of looking at that stiff upper lip in Britain. Right. Um, and a real understanding that we need to start opening up here. Our society is so, uh, tight about these, these, the challenges of growing up, um, as a, as a man in the UK. And I just, I'm, I'm reminded of, just the incredible work that's been going on across the pond, as you've been speaking about the incredible work going on here in the states, and, and both of these organizations actually being globally focused. So it's encouraging, right, to, to know that we are able to today uh, really really focus on on these topics where 20 years ago, 30 years ago, there were not areas um, as as much of as much focus. And bringing us to where we are today, I would love to explore a little bit with you about what your what your um, assessment is about what boys need and young men might need today um, these past couple of years in particular, uh, with their isolation and with the anxiety and with this real decoupling from people and and, and just normal school rituals. Um, again, hopefully we're coming out of this and we're seeing signs of it. Yet what are some ways that would be helpful for us as parents as teachers to Work with the young men and the boys in our worlds, um, and help them in ways that they may not express um, mm. in this period of time.
1: No, that's a great question, and I think that yeah, you know, definitely, the last couple of years have been you know, if if anything, exacerbated you know the conditions that were there when we when we when we started out. Right? I mean, kind of people who didn't have social supports or social connections got. Or even we're lonely became even lonelier, and so I mean everything just kind of got exaggerated, and um, and I think very much uh, in in some ways the, the 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 solution is similar to what we were promoting or recommending earlier too, which is you know or at least what I've been saying has not changed that much, which is to start with listening, you know, and to you know check in and to be patient. I mean, I think everybody's been, especially with the pandemic, everyone's like, I wanna, and I'm done with these masks. I'm done with, you know, not knowing. I want it to be returned to, you know, kind of elastic back, you know, right to where I was. But I think we need to realize that, you know, it was kind of two years in the making, kind of everything that we're feeling and especially um, around issues of resilience. I mean, we, we know that humans are resilient and that's definitely something we can build on. But I think that even for adults, it's very, very hard you know, to feel like, okay, I'm just going to bounce back. And we've also had that many more years of experience to build our resilience. Whereas younger people, they are absolutely resilient, but they haven't had as many years of you know, kind of trial and error or learning from mistakes or realizing that, oh, things can be bad and and then you can bounce back. And in fact, for, you know, for the pandemic to be one of their first kind of major things that they've had to deal with. I mean, this is not, I mean, some others have experienced other traumas or really difficulties. since so I'm not saying that, you know, we went through life with, you know, all rosy and rainbows and then suddenly the pandemic hit, but I'm just saying that the pandemic has really been unique in that it's, it was, um, so wide you know if it impacted everyone and it was such a big thing that everyone had to deal with and if we and for adults the adults in their lives who are very well intentioned and want to be there for boys to remember that remember adults are finding it hard <laughs> to bounce back and so to be extra patient and to be and but the one good thing that it has revealed all this social isolation is that it has revealed that absolutely humans all humans all genders Thrive on connection. We need it. We crave it. And so, hopefully, in the wake of um, as we pull out of it, we'll be able to recognize that and and kind of make that explicit. Like, see, you know, I know that a lot of gender you know constructions of gender have tended to say that boys and men don't need it, but the pandemic has shown that you know everybody suffers when they're lonely. Everybody needs to have you know that regular interaction, and that's normal. So hopefully, it has helped us. As a society, to understand what the basic human needs are, and that will help to legitimize boys, you know, when they when they do seek help and when they do want to talk about people, or when they do say, "Hey, yeah, I would love to have a, a close friendship." That there's no shame in that. That the condemn the, um, our situation these past two years has really made it clear that that is something as essential as you know, food, water, shelter. We need to connect to other people, and so um, I think that teachers and educators and anyone who's trying, you know, parents, who, anyone who's trying to support boys can kind of put lead with that.
0: Right. right. Um, a focus on connection, a focus on listening, a focus on, um, on embracing the extremely broad uh, definition of what it is to be a man, to change that quote from be a man to be a man um, is, is in similar to how we began this conversation, when boys become boys. Um, I, I'm thinking. My, my. I guess my, my, final question for you, and then I've got a, I've got a quote I want to share with you that comes from your book that just is so powerful to me. But my final question would be: actually, is there anything else that you would that you think we haven't discussed that would be really important for educators in particular who may be working with boys or or trying to create a classroom or school environment that really caters to to boys' needs? We've got listening. We've got um, an understanding that they want to connect, to team, to collaborate, um, to appreciate their individuality. Are we leaving anything out from your research?
1: Um, I think. Um, well, one of the kind of hopeful things is the boys' healthy resistance that, that that throughout the lifespan. They will they continue to seek connections and resist disconnection. So even though you know. My, my book kind of documented, you know, here are their relational strengths, here's how they start to cover up those strengths as they, you know, kind of accommodate to societal expectations. But what was kind of the hopeful piece of it is, they continue throughout to challenge it and to where they can, you know to to carve out relationships where they do feel they can speak their minds and and tell people what they're thinking and feeling and helping them to identify what those protective relationships are and to develop them and to value them and take care of those things. And so they do have this healthy resistance that there's evidence of, you know, like I said, at early childhood, through adolescence, into adulthood, a lot of the things that we observe, you know, men even struggling with, really has to do with coming back to are they just trying to connect with somebody but they're doing it in the ways that society deems permissible for men to do and sometimes those are not always healthy or positive means of, of securing connections to other people so can we return them to ha- you know being able to draw from the whole breadth and depth of their of their relational resources the things that they' you know again these qualities and skills they're born with that they know how to do and just to kind of give them permission to say okay I can I can know this in the relationship I can know this about other people I can show this thing about myself to other people and it's going to be okay and I think that um where parents and teachers can come in I mean in terms of like what you were talking about like the whole be a man I don't you're probably familiar with you know Paul Kibble's you know be a man that box exercise and one of the things that um when people do that is yes, they do know this be a man, which tends to be a more hegemonic or traditional kind of thing of like, you have to be tough, you have to be stoic, you have to project self-sufficiency. And most people know that boys, men, all genders, we're, we're all familiar with that image. But if you also put up a second box and say, well, what does it mean to be a good man? Like if someone says, oh yeah, you know, he's a good man. That, they know that too. And where we've moved from, if, if we can count kind of, this, this is progress over the, at least the last few decades, is that we're moving from a singular definition of masculinity to the recognition that there are multiple masculinities. And in fact, some would argue there are as many masculinities as there are people who identify as male, right? So you know, there's a group in Canada that says, you know, their, their slogan is, um, my masculinity is mine to define. Right. And so kind of moving to this place where people can say, you know, I'm a boy and I'm a boy who likes this and that and feels these things. And that's I'm still a boy. You can't deny them that. Whereas in the past, it used to be like, oh, well, if you're not this, this and this, then you're not a real boy or man. I think that we are moving away from that. And that's where kind of the adults and kids lives can step in and really give them some you know show them that there's leeway show them that there's a space for them to be who they are because I think that's one of the hardest things is kind of kids want to know you know is there a place for me how can I be with other people in this world and can I be with them in a way that feels like I'm actually in the relationship as opposed to an outsider watching or constantly having to pretend to be something else so that people will like me because if they find out who I really am they're gonna leave I mean that's, that, that can lead to this kind of desperation that we wouldn't want anyone to be, you know, to, to have to feel. And so, kind of, again, I, I always bring up Mr. Rogers because I feel like his fundamental message was so on target, which is if we could get to a place where in, it, every individual actually felt like they were seen and valued just the way you are, I mean, so many of the problems that we're seeing would, it wouldn't disappear, but they would be mitigated. It would, you know, because all of a sudden people would feel like, yes, this is hard, but I'm not alone and I can get some help and I can go on and there's a place for me. You yeah. know, I think it's, um, I think that's probably my biggest critique of the way this whole socialization process has, you know, the toll of the socialization process is making people feel like they're not good enough. Yeah. And that just, that can, you know, pervade every single aspect of our lives when we feel like we're falling short. All of a sudden, it keeps us from being able to develop and learn and to be our best selves, and all these, you know, all these things that you've heard a million times, I'm sure. But, um, but it's thrive. a simple message, but it's hard to do. So, if we could get there, I think it would help a lot.
0: You've, you've inspired me um, beyond the podcast with what you were just sharing about um, being a good man and creating an environment for thriving, not just surviving, and and one where you can truly be what was that Canadian expression again, my masculinity is my is de- mine
1: to define
0: is mine to define. I mean, that is so in in Los Angeles, we run a uh, a three week program uh, for young men, grade seven through ten uh, called Reach Academy for young men. And it is you def- you defined the mission of this uh, this new organization so beautifully because um, for it to succeed, it will, the the young men in this environment will will know that they have, they feel free to be who they are, the agency given to them as boys, as young men um, in this environment will result in flourishing and self-discovery and a broadening of uh, self-definition. And I wanted to read a quote back to you. One of the things, one of the amazing elements about When Boys Become Boys, your book, is just how you capture the voices of not just the boys, but of the parents as well. and uh, and we don't have time now to talk about fathers, but um, there is a part where you interview um, Mike's dad, and Mike is a boy, young 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 man, boy. and uh, and his dad watches his son, Mike, get up on the stage and pick up a microphone. And about, and about to sing Elvis Presley, Hound Dog, and being very, very open and very buoyant. And the father views this so supportively and is so embracing of his son. And as you write, as Mike's dad described, Mike's spunk on that stage included his ability to express himself openly and wholeheartedly and seemed to reflect his comfort with himself and his trust in other people. Although Mike's dad viewed Mike's spunk as a positive thing, his dad also knew that this openness could get boys into trouble because it tends not to be socially valued, especially in boys, and is therefore at risk as boys learn to behave and to be good. Mike's dad wished to preserve Mike's ability to be out there in this way, but he also worried that Mike's spunk, if allowed to persist, could make Mike vulnerable to criticism and ultimately perhaps rejection. And that vignette that you captured right there, just it has transcended this whole conversation Um, back to close to the beginning when we were talking about the, I wanna connect with others. I'm four years old on the playground, yet in order to connect, I'm gonna be somebody who's hiding parts of himself at such a young age, right? That just is, and, and also to have that furthered by the notion that this is the first in a whole series of steps of um, male development, masculine identity development. And yet in this conversation, we're wrapping it with such a message of hope that you shared about where we are today, what research is confirming, your research is confirming in and, and, and how to help young men truly thrive in this world. To, it's okay to be collaborative. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to, um, to, to be outside of that box that certainly I grew up in um, and also having gone to an all-boys school in the 80s. So I want to leave you with that. I'm going to leave you with that, with gratitude for your wisdom today, Judy. And I'd love to give you the last word. Anything we haven't covered or anything you want to respond to that we haven't had the chance to, please take us home.
1: (laughs) Oh, goodness. (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, I think, I mean, in hearing you you remind me of that. Um, I love that example actually because I, I remember seeing what had happened and and in, in he said he was going to talk about you he was he was nervous you know Mike was nervous and he was going to sing this song and he, he actually got on stage and then said you know I was going to sing this song but then I'm a, I'm a li- feeling a little bit nervous and then he went ahead and did it and when you know his dad was talking about his spunk it's kind of that again that spunkiness that exuberance that just kind of like here I am you know and it's so vulnerable but it's also so endearing and and I think. You know as you were kind of listening like all these things that we want boys to be able to do i think the fear you know in this society that values so much being in control which is kind of you know unsustainable if not unachievable often you know nobody can be in control all the time i think we worry that if we open this can of worms that you know it's, it's going to create this mess but i think you know i i try to remind myself to think of well what's the alternative It's the alternatives like you know, you tell them you they can't do it. It doesn't make it go away. It just means that, you know, it gets, it's like a bottle of soda that gets shaken up and shaken up and it just feels all inside. And then it's all inside the person. Whereas, you know, when you let, the, let that go, first of all, that pressure doesn't have to build up. They don't have to feel like they have to contain it all by themselves. And you'll find that sometimes if you're really careful and you open it gradually, it doesn't explode and everything's fine. And everything kind of equalizes out and, and kind of, um, everyone feels better, feels relief. I feel like right now, especially as you know, to return to your topic of like, how do we come out of the pandemic? We're all so, we've been so pent up, right? From the past two two years, There's for very good reason. There have been a lot of hard things that people have dealt with and you know again to kind of let the let the let our re-entry be a gradual release that you know gives you know allowing us to be patient with ourselves to be gentle with ourselves that also touches on the topic of self-care which often for boys and men gets kind of discounted like oh what do you mean self-care you know you're you're just supposed to be like a you know like the energizer bunny you're just supposed to keep on going and always be okay and if you you know even like i'm always really surprised at how boys and men are kind of Talked about and treated as though they were robots, or expected to be robots. Like, oh, you broke your arm, you know, just walk it off, shake it off. And I'm like, what, you know? And and so to to kind of be able to, I'm not saying like we should all be like lying around weeping all the time, but that's not going to happen, you know. I think that uh, that's the people's uh, kind of irrational fear is that oh, if we uh, open the floodgates, you're gonna the flood is gonna come in. But it, that's really not what I've seen happen in practice. Is that it kind of just, it's more of a gradual release. And then people feel like they don't have to be, be all pent up and, and, um, and unhappy all the time, basically. They, they forgive them. And it doesn't mean that they have to be happy, but it just also means like, it's okay to feel whatever you're feeling and that this too will pass. And the more that we are eager or that we are effortful in trying to suppress those feelings, the bigger they become and the more, un, more unmanageable they feel. So again, that comes back to Mr. Rogers, right? Like when we can talk about it, then we make them manageable, right? And so, it, it's um, I, I, it's I maybe end with one one um, story, and you can always edit, <laughs> hopefully. But I um, I had a student who had suffered, you know, a few years ago who had suffered a huge loss. It was very close to his grandfather, and his grandfather had passed, and he was really having a hard time with it. So he emailed me, I don't think I can come to class. I just don't feel okay. And you know, three days later. Uh, he was still feeling like he couldn't handle it. He hadn't talked to anyone. He didn't want anyone to know he was trying to be okay for all of this because there's a really great, kid right and he just didn't want to burden anyone with what he was struggling with and i I encouraged him to come to my class that day because we were having a guest speaker ashanti branch who was in the mask you live in i don't know if you saw that film but ashanti comes to my class every year and my my students just love him and what he did was just kind of simple everyday things like he checked in you know everybody go around the room and on a scale of one to ten so nothing no personal outpouring but on a scale of one to ten just be honest how you're feeling and the boy who had been struggling after that session with ashanti said i feel so much better he'd been just kind of feeling crushed having to carry around this huge and it didn't mean that he was going to be like you know skipping through the campus or anything I and mean, he still was feeling very deeply sad about his the loss of his grandfather But all of a sudden, you know, being able to acknowledge it, if only to himself, but, you know, Ashanti, helped him to have them partner up. So he was able to talk about it a little bit with one other person saying, oh, here's what's going on for me. And again, it was only like a five minute exercise. So it wasn't like an hour long therapy session. It was a five minute acknowledgement, but it just lifted things. And so just to know that little things can help, so that sometimes we feel like, oh, we don't want to, open that bottle because we're worried we're not equipped to deal with it. Sometimes it just takes listening. You don't have to be a professional. You don't have to have all the right advice to give. And that can, it can make a huge difference anyway.
0: I'm so glad that you uh, reminded us of that point. You don't, again, it gets back. You don't have to have the answers. It's listening is absolutely front and center. And it's it's not about like, let's have lunch together and like have a therapy session. It is. Actually, not that at all, (laughs) because that's the (laughs) quickest way to shut the door in so many boys and girls, Um, you know, just younger people or people in general. Um, So it's it, but it is just that showing that you see, you are seen, and you are supported. Um, Wow, I could we could go on and on, Judy. This has been absolutely wonderful, Doctor Judy Chu. um, By the way. Weren't you in that movie, too, or am I wrong about
1: that? I, w- I was in that as well. Yes. In The Mask is, You it, Live In. The
0: Mask You Live In. It was 2015, I think. I think it came out right after your book, maybe. Yeah. And uh, and it is, if you haven't seen it, um, definitely, I recommend it. Really, I mean, just not only, obviously, because Judy's in it and featured and offers more of her wisdom in it, but it's also just, uh, it, it was a fantastic documentary about the state of masculinity. Uh, today. And today being six to seven impressionable years ago. Um, in, and it's it's nice to see kind of where that film, where your book and other resources have taken us and will continue to take us into a more hope-filled future. So thank you, Dr. Dr. Judy Chu, for being with us today on Reach Teach Talk. You've been listening to Reach Teach Talk with Nat Damon. If you'd like to recommend a guest for a future episode, you can send your suggestion or questions to nat at reachacademics.com.